Today we uh, get to continue our sermon series. This is week number four, I think. Holy cow. This is flying by. We're doing a five-week series called A New Song. It's 30 days in Psalm 40. We're taking uh, one psalm. We're resting in it, marinating in it for a full 30 days. We have a companion devotional that goes along with it. It looks like this. If you have not um, grabbed your copy, we have free uh, copies on Amazon every Sunday of the series. And so an ebook copy is there for you. You can download it immediately, read it on your computer or your phone or your tablet or however you want to read it. If you don't do that and you say, yeah, I'd really love to just have can you just email me a copy of it? I'll send you a PDF if you want it. You just let me know. We want this to be free for everybody as much as they want it. And so it's not only there on Amazon. If you um, look for a Psalm 40 devotional or put my name in, it'll come right up. We also have it on Facebook every single morning at 6 a.m. And so Monday through Saturday, there's a devotional that kind of keeps us in this rhythm for this month. So I want to make sure you knew about that. And today we're going to talk about um, overcoming heart failure, overcoming heart failure. And so the, the question we're kind of asking to get started today is, do you ever feel like your troubles kind of keep piling up? Or that you're spinning plates, the busy world that we live in and everybody's got a lot to do and a lot going on. Do you ever feel like you're kind of spinning plates and, and one wobbles and you try to keep it going and then as soon as you get that one going, the other side wobbles and you run over there and you just live in kind of a constant state uh, of exhaustion, waiting for something to come crashing down. If you've ever felt like that, this week is for you. Let's just get into the scripture and we'll talk more about it. Psalm 40, verse 10. Scripture says, I do not hide your righteousness in my heart. I speak of your faithfulness and your saving help. I do not conceal your love and your faithfulness from the great assembly. Do not withhold your mercy from me, Lord. May your love and faithfulness always protect me. For troubles without number surround me. My sins have overtaken me. I cannot see. There are more than, they are more than the hairs of my head, and my heart fails within me. Be pleased to save me, Lord. Come quickly, Lord, to help me. This is a psalm of King David. David is writing this, and we, as we've talked about, he's coming out of some um, kind of inspecific, we don't know exactly what it is, but he's coming, coming out of a trial where he's had, uh, not, a, not a court trial, but just trials and tribulations. People have been against him, people have been out to get him, and he's, he's kind of fighting off enemies of many sorts. And as he's doing this, he also recognizes that even within his own self, not only do his troubles surround him, but his sins have overtaken him. He can't see there's so much. He says, they are more than the hairs of my head, and my heart fails within me. You know why so many people love David? David in the scripture is so many people's most favorite, beloved character. Because he's so relatable. He sounds just like us. He, he's a mix of faith and fear. He's a mix of, of joy and sorrow. He's, he's real. And it's not kind of candy-coated religion. It's like, oh, this, is, this guy speaks my language. This is real life. He looks at the growing carnage around him, and he says, my heart fails within me. What he's talking about, and what we're talking about today, is this kind of weariness of the fight. The weariness of, of fighting the good fight, the weariness of sticking with it one more day. Th that, that thing we feel when we get tired of the process of recovery. We would kind of say that everyone's sort of in some state of recovery all the time. We're all recovering from something. We're all working through pain. We're all working through the previous trial. We're all trying to find reconciliation. We're all kind of working through that all the time. That's an exhausting process. We once owned a car that was an exhausting process. It was called a Volkswagen Tiguan. And it was a little SUV. And it was named, this is not a joke, it was named after a combination of the words tiger and iguana, and they combined them, and the Germans thought it would be cool to name it a Tiguan. 
And uh, here's my uh, unsolicited, so this is free, you can keep this. Don't ever buy a car named after two random animals shoved together for the name, okay? Bad idea. We get this car, got a good deal, working great, doing fine, peppy, solidly German, I don't even know what that means, but it just everything's heavier, more expensive, when you have to change the oil, it's, the storage is limited, mileage was just pretty good, but Steph loved it, it was Steph's car, she loved it, it was just, she grew up, her dad got her a 700-year-old Volkswagen, that's what she kind of grew up driving, and so when she got this car, she's like, it just feels like home, it's just great, I love it. I loved it until it went into the shop, and we went to this uh, place in, in San Antonio, and, and walk in, and they're named Christian Brothers Auto, and I was like, I really hope they're Christians, because I always feel like I'm going to just get ripped off totally, because I don't know what's happening. They could tell me that the flux capacitor is broken, and I'd be like, okay, how much is that? <laughs> Whatever. I'll take two. Give me a second one in case that one breaks too. All right. And so we go in, and they, they're actually, they're really sweet. They're like, oh yeah, we are actually, you're a pastor, great, we'll give you a pastor discount. And I'm like, this is great. They're like, flux capacitors are half price, you know, so I'm going, hold on. <laughs> they know. And they do this like, you know, they run the computer test and they run the thing and they have all this stuff and they call me the next day and they say, oh, we got good news and bad news. And I was like, okay, good news is we know what's wrong. Bad news is um, we're finding little chunks of orange plastic in your exhaust system. And I was like, that, I've never, I've never heard that one before. They're like, yeah, we haven't really seen it before. We called around. We have a bunch of folks who know that do Volkswagen stuff all around the country. And, and it's an issue with this particular car in this particular year that um, there's only one piece of orange plastic in the whole automobile, and it's actually not, it's, it's sort of important. So um, they said, basically, a really critical part of your engine is disintegrating, and it's ending up in your exhaust. We said, okay, well, that sounds um, really hopeful. Can you tell us more? <laughs> and he says, well, you have two options. We can um, kind of totally replace this whole area. It's 3000 bucks. He goes, but when we asked around, most people said, they had the same problem six months later. You can replace it, but the new thing has the same part that's just as faulty, and it's going to come back in, and you're going to be back in here. And they're like, we'll be happy to take 10000 bucks from you over the next couple of years to keep replacing your engine. But um, what we'd actually suggest is that you uh, spend $1,000 to fix, you know, X, Y, and Z part that would actually kind of make it better for now, and then you should sell the car. And I was like, oh, well, that's really sweet. Okay, so... We went back and forth, and I asked them, I was like, you know, if I'm going to sell the car, though, and I know it's messed up, you know, what's that about? And they go, no, you, you're rolling the dice either way. And they go, so you can spend 3000 and sell it, or you can spend 1000 and sell it, and have the exact same chance of kind of being back in here in six months. And so for your integrity, spend 1000 sell it. And I was like, okay. So we spent 1000 bucks. We got the car up to kind of integrity level ready to sell, and we sold the car, and we were out for forever. We just said we'll never go back to that. And every time I see one, I look at the exhaust pipes, just looking for, like, orange plastic sticking out. The guy basically said, I can fix it for a bit, or you can sell it entirely. He was offering me a, a tune-up or a trade-in, basically. I can tune it up. It's, it's still not going to work eventually. I mean, it's going to break again. Or you just need to totally kind of, like, you need, like, a car transplant. And I, I thought about it, and I was like, doesn't life feel like that sometimes? That no amount of effort seems to fix the problem. No amount of maintenance or upkeep seems to get the thing right. You just, you know, even when it's good, it's going to break down again. Some, we have relationships like that. We have, we have areas of our life where we go, man, every time I feel like I get the thing running again, it's back in the shop. But you can't trade it in relationships, can you? Some of you are thinking, well, maybe. Husbands and children. You know, the, the thing about trading in relationships is you always get a better price if you sell it outright. Don't do the trade-in with the dealer. That doesn't... Never mind. Okay. So like David says, trouble surrounds us. 
our sins overcome us, and our heart fails. The problem with kind of repeated maintenance that ends up in the same problem is the troubles seem to always come back. The plate always seems to wobble again, and that's the treadmill of exhaustion that we're on, is eventually you go, I just don't, I just give up. Just let it be broken, because every time I fix it, it breaks again. And that's how we feel in our honest moments. In our honest moments, we go, gosh, I've been fighting this sin for a long time. I've been fighting this habit for a long time. I've been fighting this thought process for a long time. I've been fighting this in this relationship for a long time. It's just easier to quit. And it doesn't matter what that specific thing is in you. That thing when I say, gosh, you've been fighting this for a long time, almost everyone has something that kind of pops up. You're like, ooh, it's this relationship, or it's this sin, or it's this. (sighs) Yeah, I feel tired in that sometimes. Pride or pornography, resentment or apathy, infidelity or idol chasing, greed or lust, materialism, mindless worrying, or simply unreconciled relationship. Whatever it is, when we feel like David, we end up stopping the fight. We throw the towel and we just go, I just can't do it anymore. It's just too hard. I'm in too deep. What's the point? And then as Christians, as followers of Jesus, we sometimes have this thing in us that says, you know what? Well, I'm saved. I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm saved anyway. So let me just, I just, I'm not even going to worry about that anymore. Like it's not critical to my salvation if I get that infinitesimal piece of my life fixed or not. So I'm just not going to worry about it anymore. I'm just going to, whatever. And so we start normalizing sin. We start normalizing that one thing that we've been called to struggle through and fight against. We normalize it and we say, well, you know, everybody does it. Well, you know, everybody's got issues. And we start normalizing things. And we end up creating a, a system where the standard has been dropped so low that we now fit the standard, even though that was never God's standard to begin with. And we say things like, well, it's not that bad compared to this person. Well, at least I'm not a blank, whatever. And everybody, I mean, people on death row can say that. They can look at the guy in the next cell. Well, at least I didn't do that. That would be bad, but I think I'm okay. And that's where we get with our own sin is we we get so weary from the fight that we just give up and we normalize it. And eventually on this road, this is where we get to heart failure. We give up. We just start going through the motions. If any of this resonates at all, then you would agree that you know a tune-up doesn't actually fix the problem. The story of Naaman in, in Second Kings is, is useful for us today. It's this interesting story about Naaman who um, is born with leprosy, and he's offered healing. We'll read it. I'll just put it on the screen, and we'll read it together. It says, so Naaman, Naaman went with his horses and chariots. He has leprosy, and he stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to him to say to him, go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan. He's going to Elisha to get healing. He knows Elisha is a man of the Lord, and maybe Elisha will give him healing. Go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will be restored, and you will be cleansed. But Naaman went away angry and said, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call in the name of the Lord his God, wave his hand over the spot, and cure me of my leprosy. Verse 14. So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times, as the man of God had told him. And his flesh was restored, and he became clean like that of a young boy. When you read the story of Naaman, what you, what you find is Naaman is desperate for healing. And he knows there's no amount of treatment's going to help. He's desperate for some sort of, like, transformation. And so he finally comes to kind of God's representative, and he says, you can do this. I know you can do this. How do I become healed? And then he becomes angry when Elisha says there's a process to it. Like, healing is a process, Naaman. 
So what you need to do is go to the Jordan and dip yourself in seven times. And though it doesn't make sense to you, it makes sense to me. It's a process. And what's Naaman's response? Naaman says he could have just waved his hand and healed it. So I'm angry now. Now I'm resentful. Not only am I resentful that I was born this way, I'm resentful that healing requires some process. But isn't it true that healing and recovery is always a process? And how many of us carry anger that we're still having to work through the process of healing? Ultimately, when Naaman finds healing, it's because he finds submission to God's plan for his life. Because humility always precedes healing. Everywhere you go in life, humility always precedes healing. You do marital counseling, you find that humility precedes healing. People have to be willing to become less, that the whole might become more. Later we see God's promise to Israel in the book of Ezekiel. It says, for I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put on a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees. I'll move you. Be careful to keep my laws, and then you will live in the land I gave your ancestors. You will be my people, and I will be your God. God's great promise to his people is I will cleanse you. I will make you new. I will make you whole. And what we see in that, and when we think about the struggle, and we think about trying harder, and, and I'm just going to will my way into being better, what we learn is that that's not illegalism. That thing in us that wants to be better, that thing in us that wants to kind of figure it out, it has nothing to do with legalism. A lot of us, once we become followers of Christ, we go, you know what, that's all legalism. This, this whole follow the law stuff, this whole keep this right and make sure that sin's not, like I just need to be free to be me and Jesus. And what the scripture says is we yearn to be better, not out of legalism. We yearn to be better because the Holy Spirit resides in us and the scripture says it moves us to want to follow God's decrees. What the book of Ezekiel is saying is that the law becomes beauty to the regenerated heart. When that heart of flesh is installed and the heart of stone is taken out, then we don't resist God's law. We start to see beauty in it and order in it and purpose in it. And we, we feel his healing working through us. Because healing with God isn't ultimately about being made better. It's about being made new. Healing with God is not about being made better. It's about being made new. So when God wants to cleanse his people, he doesn't give them a better heart. He gives them a new heart. Treatment makes us better. Transplants make us new. Some of you know my story, the transplant story of my own life. My sister, uh, when she was 11, got kind of uh, critically ill. Couldn't breathe. Pulled back the wallpaper. Is there mold back there? Is it asthma? Is it we did all the tests, everything we could do. Never figured out what it was. But what we knew is she couldn't breathe anymore. And she had wore the oxygen mask and was breathing like a sprinter still all the time. And the doctor said, look, this is not going to go well. And the only option, there's no treatments left. We've tried everything. The only option is transplant. Treatment won't make her better. Transplant will. And so as the story goes, my short time span we had, we, our family got together and anybody who was willing got in line and they tested us all for, are you a willing and, and able match as a donor? So my father was chosen to give his right lung, and I was chosen to give my left lung, and we went in, and they opened us up, and they cut it out, and they opened her up, and they took out the old, and they put in the new. It was 
a massive procedure. We all moved from San Antonio to St. Louis for six months because that's where the best hospital was. It was this whole risky, kind of slightly terrifying thing. And somewhere in everybody was this thing throughout that whole process getting to that transplant day where everybody says, well, isn't there another treatment? Can't we just try harder? Can't we do more of this? Can't we just be better? Is there another way to be better just through treatment? Why? On some level, the treatment was easier than the transplant. And the doctors would say, no, the only way to replace the brokenness that's in her is to totally clean it out and put in something new. The only way that that gets made better is not old made better, it's old made new. Even Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane before he's going to be crucified is, is praying and he, he asks, Father, if you can just take this from me. If there's any other way we can do this, and his, and his, his full humanity is totally submitted to God's will and God's plan, and yet is going, man, if there's any other way. And yet the only path to our healing was total transplant, was Christ's life given up for us. See, transplant always costs someone. My sister's first transplant, it cost me, it cost my dad, it cost us. And her second transplant that she had 10 years later, it cost the family of the person who passed away, the cadaver's lungs that they took. That person lost their life that she might gain. Then when she had a kidney transplant because the drugs for the anti-rejection medicine that kept her lungs alive, when the, the kidney failed, it cost my aunt who said, I'm here. And she lost a kidney that my sister might have life. Transplant always costs. Tim Keller famously says, forgiveness always costs the giver. It's much the same. Forgiveness always costs the giver. There's a cost to be paid in someone being made whole. There's a cost to be paid in someone being made right. It's the giver of forgiveness that absorbs the pain and the punishment instead of meeting out justice. Which, as you think about it, goes back to what we said, that humility precedes healing. You think about reconciling with somebody. If you had a rift with someone and it just wasn't fixed and you knew it and they knew it. You often hear the phrase, I'm going to be the bigger man and go and say something. I'm going to go make this right. I would argue that it's actually becoming the smaller man that gets it fixed. It's deflating our pride just enough to walk across the aisle, to walk across the street, to make the phone call, to write the letter. Whatever it is to reconcile, it, it actually becomes... I need to become less. I need to take on and absorb the pain and absorb the punishment. And I need to hold it and weigh it. And it's on me now so we can be whole. Our healing, your healing, my healing, our heart transplant that's talked about in Ezekiel, the one that we receive when Jesus gives his life for us, that costs Christ everything. The new life only requires that we have the humility to then accept it. The same is true in the issues of our flesh that still inflict pain in our daily life. The habits and the hang-ups, the hurts we still carry. Even though we live in Christ, we grapple with these old things. We grapple with this old stuff that we brought into this new life. Humility is to accept a transplant, 
even in those things, to begin to surrender them as well, to go, you know what, I, get, I can keep trying harder, and I see where that got me, or I can surrender that too. And in that, I can recognize that healing and recovery is a process to be walked through. Verse 13 of our psalm, David says, come quickly, Lord, come quickly. David knows the urgency that you and I feel. David knows that urgency that we all have when something is broken and not right and we want to make it whole. David knows that. Come quickly. Sometimes God says, why don't you work through that anger a little bit? People say, why do bad things happen to good people? And sometimes God says, it's going to take you a while, but it's, it's not as bad as you think. I have your good thought out in this. I have your good ultimately set aside for this. I, I, know it doesn't, I know it doesn't feel good right now. Maybe the question for each of us today is to, to seek God on what it means to, to dip ourselves seven times in the Jordan. What is that for you? What thing are you fighting through, working through, struggling with that, that you're going, God, if you would just fix this. Or you're not even, you're just done with God. You're going, look, you haven't fixed this, so I'm just going to keep trying harder. I'm going to keep trying new stuff. I'm going to fix it myself. I'm going to apply this treatment and that self-help book, and I'm going to work harder here and try harder there and cut that people out of my life, and I'm just going to, I'm going to make it right. Where is it that God might be going, no, no, I have a plan, but it's going to take a process. And like Naaman is told to go and dip himself in the river seven times, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but we know that there's something to walk through. There's a faithfulness that's required of us to find the healing. End of verse 13, David says, be pleased to save me. It's his recognition that he can't do it himself anymore. God, come quickly, be pleased to save me. He cries out in humility to go, look, I can't fix this. I cannot vanquish the enemies. I can't bring myself to safety. I can't find my own security. Be pleased to save me. When we find that tone, in our spirit, when we find that tone in our prayers with God, that we're no longer going, God, can you just fix it? And we're going, Lord, I don't have it in me. Be pleased to save me. Come quickly if you can. And if it's going to take a while, tell me what the path is that I might walk it humbly. When we have that same tone that David has, all of a sudden, the thing starts to change. The, the transplant starts to take hold. You find your resentment transplanted for grace. You find your addiction transplanted for freedom, your materialism transplanted with contentedness, anxiety transplanted with peace. To take on a transplant isn't to become better, but to become new. We're offered new by Christ. Not addicted, but better. Free. Not anxious, but a little better. No, peace. We're offered new. This is called sanctification, this process of living. Sanctification is, is this whole idea of becoming holier, becoming more like Christ as we grow in him. It's the description scripture gives us of our life after salvation. After that moment where we've submitted our life and we've surrendered our, ourselves and we say, you know what, God, this is all about you and you're the only one that can save me and I'll follow you and I believe. And in that moment, salvation happens and the Holy Spirit comes upon you and that's real and that's true. And yet scripture lays out that there's this whole rest of your existence on this place. Where you're being sanctified, where you're being grown and stretched, where all the impurities are being stripped away. Sort of like 
process of being dipped in the river seven times. Like, really? Couldn't that have just been it? A lot of people think of, of Christianity as like a light switch. Lost, found. Broken, all better. And anybody who's been a Christian for any amount of time knows that it's just not how it works. Now, condemned and saved, absolutely. But the moment of belief, Scripture is clear, that light switch is on. And yet it's not a zero to a hundred. It's sort of like, now we got a current running to you. And life is more like a dimmer switch. And as you walk through it and as you learn and as you rest and you learn to surrender more to God, as you learn to, to, to rely more on God, as you learn to uh, allow more of yourself to be controlled by the Holy Spirit and less by the former self, that dimmer switch kind of goes up a little bit and you start to see things a little clearer and things make more sense. And that, that thing that didn't make sense, the scripture you read 10 years ago, now makes sense. Because that dimmer switch is just pushed, that sanctification is God's going, you're getting there, you're getting there, you're getting there. And you're going, I didn't like that season. He goes, it was for your good. And you go, I don't like this idea. And he goes, that's for your good. That dimmer switch keeps going up. And the way we control that, as much as we control anything, is so counterintuitive. It's what makes it so frustrating for us is the way you control that slow, dimmer coming up in your world and everything starting to make sense is not by knowing more, doing more. It's actually by surrendering more. Then it, then it starts to make sense. Oh, I see it now. Oh, I get it now. Salvation is immediate, but sanctification is a process. Transplant happens all at once, but healing is this process that happens. Book of Isaiah, prophet writes, Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. It springs forth. Revelation 21 he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. That God's promises to us are not that he's going to make it better, he's going to make it new. That Jesus coming to earth and giving his life for us, that living the perfect sinless life and dying on the cross on our behalf was not about making it a little bit better, it was about making the whole thing new. Heart failure, that feeling of giving up that comes when we don't see a way to better, happens because we've forgotten that we aren't destined for better at all. We're being made new. You're being transformed. New identity in Jesus, new hope in his resurrection, new life in his grace. It's new. My sister's transplant story has an ending, which doesn't seem like it should be a good thing. Two sets of lungs, a new kidney, 14 years of fighting and illness. And it ended when we lost her, when she left us on June 1st, 2013. That was her last day with us. Even in that struggle, the promise from God was not that her struggle was for nothing or that her transplant had failed. We go back to Scripture, we go, what does that mean? How is that winning? How is that for my good? 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says, For we know that when this earthly tent we live in is taken down, that is, when we die and leave the earthly body, we will have a house in heaven, an eternal body made for us by God himself and not by human hands. We grow weary like David. We grow weary in our present bodies. We long to put on our heavenly bodies like new clothing. We will put on these heavenly bodies. We will not be spirits without bodies. 
Verse 4 says, while we live in these earthly bodies, we groan and we sigh. But it's not that we want to die and get rid of these bodies that clothe us. Rather, we want to put on our new bodies so that these dying bodies will be swallowed up by life. God himself has prepared us for this, and as a guarantee, he has given us the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is his promise to us that all things are being made new. And as this body breaks down, as this body gives up, as I groan and I sigh and I scratch and I claw and nothing quite seems right, the Holy Spirit is God's promise that things are being made new. That there's a promise beyond the world that I live in. And so in us, in each of us, is this knowledge God has woven in us that new is coming. That's why now is always so unsatisfying. Because there's new on the horizon. Because there's new out there for us. Because there's new. Our struggle here is ultimately rooted in that thing in us that knows that we're being made new. And that true healing really does await. So my sister's story doesn't end in death. My sister's story ends in the ultimate healing falling upon her. Finally taking place. That all of our attempts to prolong this life, while they failed, eventually, her story is that she was finally healed. The June 1st was not the day she died, it was the day she finally found healing, that she found new. And all of the struggles and the groaning, all the tests and the transplants, the, the hospital for 14 years was gone. And in its place was something new and glorious and wonderful. On that day, she wasn't breathing better. She was healed. She wasn't feeling better. She was new. In Christ, death is being swallowed up by life. I love the scripture says that it's not that we want to get rid of these bodies. It's that these old and dying bodies are being swallowed up by life. But there's something beautiful in that, that it isn't out with the old and, well, whatever, God is saying, I am so incredible that I am going to swallow up death with life, that death will be no more because life is too great. In Christ, death is being swallowed up by life. We serve a God that is not about better, but is about new. Salvation in Jesus invites us into the new now. Now. You and I have the choice as followers of Christ. We have the choice to believe that and to begin to live towards the new now. Or to struggle and groan and resent and live a life of just kind of grumbling resistance that life is hard. Or to have the perspective shift that says, I am being made new and every single bump and bruise along the way is part of my ultimate recovery. It's part of my ultimate recovery healing and the day is coming when it's all going to come right salvation is on offer that whosoever shall believe would have eternal life that's the promise not whosoever should be good enough or have earned it or jump through the right religious hoops or have been baptized as a baby or got baptized as an adult is none of that whosoever believes that Jesus came and lived that life and died for us, whosoever believes is is saved. Is on the other side of death, is brought to life, and then new begins at that moment. If you walked in here struggling today, my prayer is that you would submit to that process of healing in your life. 
Maybe identify what that, that Jordan River is for you. What's that thing God's asking you to do or to go through so that he can begin to form and heal you in that area? The prayer is that your heart would remember that new is on offer. And we can choose all we want to live in the old. We can be given a heart of flesh and, and decide today, you know what, I'm still going to live the dead self. I'm going to live the old habit. I'm going to live the old life because it's just easier for me. It makes more sense than struggling in this new thing. Pray that people in here who feel that way, who feel that struggle, would, would have David's words on your heart this week. Then in great humility, we would be able to pray, all of us, come quickly, Lord, be pleased to save me. If you're in here and you've never said that at all, if you've never had that moment where you said, you know what, I don't think I've ever surrendered anything to Jesus. heard about it, thought about it. Scripture is clear that the moment of belief, when we surrender our lives, we go, God, I believe that you did this for me, that salvation is yours. So my other prayer is that if you're in here today and you've never actually had that moment of your life, you've never had that experience where you knew for a, a fact beyond a shadow of a doubt that you went from death to life, that you were included in Christ and what he's done for us. And when we pray, pray with us. We'll ask God to give us that assurance, that touch. The Holy Spirit might be real to us and that our life would begin today. So as we pray, uh, would you bow your heads with me? Heavenly Father, we are, uh, we are many. Each of us unique with our own struggle and circumstance, each of us coming with our own uh, own problems and perspectives, our own circumstances and situations. And yet, Father, you say you know each of us intimately. You know our problems better than we do. You know us better than we know ourselves. Father, for those in this room that would say uh, belief has eluded them, that they've been living out of their own strength and their own life, and yet today they would choose today to follow you, that they would choose life and salvation. Father, my prayer is that in their own hearts now, they would make that clear and plain. We would give up, each of us, on the attempt to save ourselves or be good enough or be religious enough, that we would leave behind the systems that men have created and we would rest on uh, you and you alone that you chose to save us by sending Jesus to take the penalty of our sins, to die on the cross, to rise from death and invite us into that life beyond death. So Father, for the first time or the hundredth time, we accept that. We believe that you did this. We believe in Jesus. We believe in the salvation he offers and the newness it brings. Father, we long to be created for something greater than uh, what this world has to offer, and your word tells us we are. We long to be included in something bigger than ourselves, and your word tells us we are. So today, Father, in our belief, find us whole and safe in you. 
for those of us that have long prayed that, have long believed that, have long been on the right side of salvation, to find life wearying and a struggle that feel like our heart fails within us at times. Father, I pray you would provide relief, that you would give us courage to walk the journey you've put before us, endurance to walk it if it's difficult. God, you would give us a clear instruction as to what the Jordan is for each of us. What does it mean to walk this recovery process towards ultimate healing, which is being in your presence? Father, find us reconciled with each other. Find us reconciled with you. We confess we are imperfect and we need you. But in you alone is our hope and our joy. In you alone is our salvation. So God, we surrender again to you today. We rest in you again today and pray that you would give us everything we need to get through the day one step closer to the ultimate new in you. Father, we love you. Thank you for Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.